Hello everyone. On 30th November 2019, our editor-in-chief, Kirsten Han, sat down with Tiu Yu Yen, the author of This Is What Inequality Looks Like, at the Ethos Books Festival sale. They talked about their approach to writing and their process, as well as the challenges of doing such work in Singapore. With permission from Ethos Books, New Narrative recorded this conversation, which we are sharing with you now. Enjoy! Uh, good afternoon, everyone. Thanks so much for being here this Saturday afternoon. I'm very happy to um, uh, and, and grateful for Ethos for organizing this and, and looking forward to talking with Kirsten today. Um, we discussed a little bit what we would talk about. And there's a real danger because I think both of our, our occupations are where we interview other people and we prefer to interview people and rather than to answer questions. So there's a real risk that the whole session today will just be questions. Me asking her, her asking me, me asking her. her. So, yeah. um, but there were sort of three general sets of questions that we wanted to talk about. One is how we do our work, what the, the process is like for, for being a journalist, what the process is like for being an, an academic, um, what purpose drives our work, uh, and finally, what are some key challenges that we see today um, in being a journalist or being a sociologist? I'm going to start. Okay. <laughs> so, Kirsten, <laughs> how do you go about your work? Um, I think I usually, it's quite self-indulgent from the beginning because I, what draws me first is what I find interesting. So I have a lot of questions as to why things are a certain way. So, you know, I get into particular issues because I might, we might see like a policy being announced and then I want to know how this affects people's lives, what impact does this have, what is the significance, and so I start from there. I start digging and asking questions from there. So that's usually how it drives me. And then so there are certain topics that I'm more interested in that I gravitate towards, so like human rights and civil liberties. And more recently, I've been trying to get into cat journalism, which I'm sure is a thing, and if it's not a thing, I'll make it a thing, because I'm convinced that there is a market for cat journalism. And I haven't like made it my beat yet, but I will. And so trying to find stories within things that interest me. Okay. Yeah. And can you tell us a little bit about what being freelance means? I mean, does that mean that you, you then pitch these stories to news, news media? How does it work? Yeah, so being a freelancer is like running your own business, except the product that I'm selling are stories. So I have to pitch to editors, and I only get paid when a story gets picked up. So it's actually a terrible career choice because there's like zero financial security basically. But um, so, so that's how it works. I have to pitch to an editor and if they say yes, then I write it and then I hopefully get paid. So the other thing I learned about being a freelancer is earning money is not the same as having money because sometimes they just don't pay you. And so that's, that's how it basically works. It gives you a lot of freedom to choose the stories that you want to tell. But, but there's a lot of like back-end admin that's very problematic. And I think that's where journalism schools are kind of one step behind industry today because in journalism school, what I've seen is that they still kind of teach as if they assume that everybody's going to have a full-time job in journalism in a newsroom after they graduate. And actually, most of my friends that I know who have left journalism school, most of them, maybe only like one or two of them, have newsroom jobs. Everybody else is stringing or freelancing. And so there's a lot of stuff about admin, about taxes, about invoicing that none of us were ever taught. Wow, okay. And how do you figure it out then? I mean, do journalists 
Um, are you in, in networks where you talk to other people? Yeah, so we, there are networks where um, people trade tips and stuff like that, and we try to build a lot of these networks. But mostly, I think um, it's shocking how fast you learn when you don't have money <laughs> and when the bills are coming. Suddenly, you know how to invoice stuff and <laughs> chase emails and stuff like that. Um, so yeah, I think it, it's growing that there's more um, kind of solidarity between freelancers. So I see online, not just in Singapore, but internationally, there are more things where like spreadsheets are popping up, where freelancers are sharing how much they were paid for a story. So like you know that that's what an editor offered before, so he can't undercut you when you pitch. Or we share um, emails, contact details of editors, or or tips like don't write for that place. They took one year to pay me. It was terrible. Um, so things like that, they're really helpful. Actually sharing how much you've earned is really right, helpful. Right. I mean, given the sort of the increasing in freelance work and journalism, what kind of implications does that have on the kind of news that's reported, the kind of stories that are told? I think in some contexts, um, it makes reporting on things like inequality very difficult because um, so particularly, they did studies in like London and stuff like that, and they found that young journalists who are getting into journalism these days come from better family backgrounds than bankers do, because how you get a job in journalism in London is to work unpaid internships until somebody offers you a full-time job. And so what that creates is an environment where it becomes who can last in London for the longest um, before you go broke. And, and usually that's people with like daddy money, mommy money, yeah. so that's, that's how they end up getting these jobs. So it's creating this situation where journalists don't um, relate to people. So like when they report on austerity and they report on like welfare cuts, they don't relate to that sort of lived experience because that's so far from their own experience. And I think that's, that's why like I'm also really interested these days in and like the e-scooter ban, not not the ban itself, but but the riders. And I'm really interested in like Grab drivers and Gojek drivers because, like, they they have this precarity that I feel very strongly myself because I also have the same precarity. Even though, I think today the social capital attached to being a journalist is still higher than being a food panda delivery driver. But actually, it's the same precarity, the same lack of labor protection that. I experience and they actually experience. In fact, most of them that I've met earn more money than me. <laughs> but, but it's um, it's yeah, it's a big question and it's growing. I think, which is why I think when I was reading your book, I was also thinking about how how many of us might actually kind of relate or recognize aspects right. of people's lives, even if we're not in that situation. Like we might not be in a rental flat, but I think there are aspects of precarity and anxiety that we can relate to. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I think that in general, the sort of question about the future of work yeah, and the future of the, fu the future of work is going to look very different than um, the, the, the conditions of work that, that we imagined when we were growing up, right? And that those, those kinds of jobs just don't necessarily exist anymore. And so sort of trying to, or, or thinking that Work and work and, and work wages are going to meet everybody's needs. Yeah. Is, is really, uh, I think, an issue. That, yeah, that and I think even in academia, that you must know, like, I think today or this week, all my former lecture, lecturers in Cardiff University are on strike mm -hmm. because.
because of cuts to pensions and cuts to uh, academic funding, basically, that will really affect their livelihood. So they're all on strike at the moment. And, and I think that's really such a global thing that we are seeing now. Yeah, I mean, within academia, I think there's, there's a real sort of hierarchy, right? Mm. And there's a, there's a great deal of prestige and security at the top, but then there are also lots of people who are working in much more precarious conditions. Mm -hmm. uh, yeah. But I think, so, like recently, this past month, uh, I facilitate democracy classrooms for New Narrative. And so this month we've talked about inequality and we had one session at the Straits Clan and we had one session that was just open to the public. And it was really interesting that people really do recognize that this is an issue now. I think a lot of it is because they've read your book as well and there's a lot of recognition now that this is an issue. But at the same time, there were a lot of questions of, oh, but is inequality really the problem or is it poverty that's the problem? So one of the questions that came up was, oh, but if poor people could meet, like if society's poorest could, could meet a basic living standard, then do we really worry about how rich the rich people are? Like surely like a billionaire can be a billionaire as long as the poorest in his society can afford their basic needs. And so people were like, oh, so maybe then we should just solve poverty. And then inequality is not actually a problem once poverty is solved. Do you get people asking you that? Yeah, I mean a lot. Uh, <laughs> I mean, I, I think, um, the, the premise of the book in some ways was sort of aimed at that question, right? And it was aimed at trying to get people to see that uh, if we only look at the poverty issue, you don't really, um, you don't get to see a lot of the dynamics, the, the sort of causal dynamics and the causal mechanisms of perpetuating certain people's conditions. Yeah? And that if you bring in the inequality lens, then you can see there's a lot in the welfare regime, in the way work is organized, in the way uh, care is organized, in the way education systems are organized, that embed within them the logic of perpetuating these uneven outcomes for people. And, and so the, 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 the extreme end of sort of people not meeting their needs is, is important to focus on, but if you only focus on that, you're not going to address all the sort of systemic issues in our care regime, in our health regime, in our education system, et cetera. Maybe I should talk a little bit about sociology. Okay. Then. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> I ask on, on self on ask yes, on self ask on self question. Um, so I I think that there are some similarities between the kind of work I do and the kind of work you do in terms of being um, attracted to or driven by some curiosity about what's going on in the world, um, and I think that curiosity, of course, is is very important for any kind of work that involves knowledge production. Right? Um, but, I, but I think compared to you, maybe I have much more of luxury of time um, in that a lot of the projects that academics work on, we work on for many, many years. Um, and so that, that necessarily means, I think, that we, we are, um, I suppose, pursuing many different threats without necessarily a lot of the immediate pressure of producing a story, yeah, so it can, uh, so I can take a little bit longer to figure out what is the arc of the story, what is the thing that I want to tell in in, in a given project, um, and I think in sociology there there are sort of, or in the kind of sociology I do, there there are kind of two separate tendencies. One is a, a, a more sciencey kind of tendency, 
where I'm interested in you know, testing hypotheses, thinking in terms of theory testing, theory building. And then there's a more sort of artsy humanities dimension yeah, that is more about looking for emerging sort of emerging data that I didn't necessarily go in looking for, yeah, and emergent knowledge. Um, and there's a certain messiness to that. So my work is quite iterative in the sense that, you know, I'm interested in sort of testing existing theories, yeah, and, and thinking in terms of hypotheses. Um, but I'm, but I'm, while doing the work, I'm also interested in how my questions change as the things I see sort of allow me to see that same phenomenon differently than when I started the project. Um, so in my work, a lot of what I do um, sort of on an everyday basis is, is, is partly just reading a lot, actually, because um, knowledge production for an academic is very much about cumulative you know, knowledge production, meaning you're trying to build on what other people have done or what other people have learned. Um, so understanding how other people are seeing things or what other things people have found, either in our own context or in other uh, countries, is important. So I spent a lot of time doing that. Um, I spent a lot of time writing kind of to myself, you know, writing memos, drafting things. Um, and again, I think that that's a way of thinking. Like, so I, I know what I'm thinking only when I write. Mm. Yeah. So I, I write a lot. Um, and then, of course, a, a lot of the work of a sociologist, of an academic, is, is in data collection and it's in observing you know, all kinds of things in your field site um, and doing that work and, and a lot of back and forth between all those different parts, the reading, the writing, and, and data collection. Um, it, it strikes me as, as you were talking that we share certain kinds of um, sensibilities in, in our work, in our approach to work, and, and those are, you know, just curiosity one, yeah. Um, a certain, I think journalists and academics both have to, I mean, have to try to be open-minded enough Right to see things that can, I suppose, disrupt our own sense of of reality, yeah, and open-ended and open-minded enough to be able to see things from multiple perspectives. And I, I think that that's one thing again that that we share. Um, and I guess we, you and I, are both very interested in sort of contemporary socio-political issues, yeah, yep. and how um, many of the things we look at and want to understand have real consequences on people's lives. It has real consequences for what kind of society we live in and uh, what, what, as a society, what our, our values are and our beliefs are. Yeah, but I think, so that, that reminds me of the question that I was going to ask. When you say, like, data collection, and I think you, you addressed this in your book as well, that, that in Singapore, often data collection is seen as this very, like, like in the same way that they talked about the fake news law, it's it's either fact or it's not fact, right? So so it's data collection is statistics, data collection is nationwide surveys and census, and and so one thing that I, I get sometimes as a journalist, they're like, oh, you know, your story only quoted two people. How do you know that's representative? And it's true. I don't know that it is representative if I spoke to you know two migrant workers. I don't know if that's representative of the one million migrant workers that there are, but. But these are still their experiences, and I think as well as, as you know, with my experience, you know, I've been first blogging as a volunteer, and then 
writing as a journalist for about 10 years now, and I can say, yes, I quoted two migrant workers, but 10 years of speaking to migrant workers, I see this pattern. And I think that should also be taken seriously as people's experience. It might not be data in the sense that a civil servant might say this is data that I can use to make policy, but it is still really important to recognize these um, these experiences. And like I learned that through the first issue that I worked on, which was the death penalty, where data was figures, like in the prison report, how many executions carried out last year, and then they'll give a number, and then everybody is like, oh, that's dead. And then we move on, but behind each of these numbers were a lot of different experiences and stories that the more I saw unfolded patterns of, you know, that were very connected to um, social economic kind of factors that we see today, including inequality, inc and not just inequality within Singapore, but regional inequality. So, you know, drug mills who come from Sabah because they're like, well, there was nothing I could do in Sabah, and they said, well, if you carry this and go past, go through the Johor Singapore Causeway, then we'll give you this amount of money, which is more than you could ever have made if you stayed at home on the plantation. And so these sorts of things unfold, and I think they're very often dismissed as data, and so how then do we keep bringing up these human stories without being accused of being, oh, this is sentimental, this is emotional, this is unscientific, um, you're, you're letting bias get in the way, you're just siding with these people. Yeah, um, I mean, I, th I think in, this, is, this is also a big tension within, um, within my discipline, and oftentimes it's expressed as the divide between um, people who do more quantitative work and people who do more qualitative work. And I always tell my students that both of those methodologies are important for understanding the world, yeah? And it really, what methodology you use really depends on what questions you're trying to answer, right? And there are many questions that qualitative work cannot answer, and that is true, yeah? And, and that kind of empirical evidence is important as well. Um, but what I've tried to do in my work and what I think um, people who work with qualitative data try to do in their work is to say that there are many questions that you cannot answer actually with survey data um, or with census data. And a lot of those questions have to do with meaning, um, have to do with how people make sense of their life worlds, um, have to do with how to explain things that seem paradoxical, yeah, and how to explain things that seem uh, contradictory, right? And that if you look from people's life worlds and if you take seriously meaning-making processes and if you take seriously how people see how they are embedded in their social worlds, you can better understand why they do what they do, right? So that, that's one. one. One thing that surveys have a hard time getting at yeah, is trying to understand the meanings uh, people attach to certain practices um, and what survey data often cannot capture so well is how social norms matter yeah, in, in shaping people's practices. So that's one. The other I think is, is something that you allude to and, and that is kind of a view from the margins or the, few, or the view from below, right? I think the reality um, of any of us working, uh, writing, um, speaking, you know, in any kind of knowledge production enterprise, is that of course we are not 
um, we're not doing this in a vacuum, right? And the context we're in, we're doing it in a kind of field where a lot of what is produced in society in terms of what, what society is, is produced from the top, right? And so we, we get a very good view from the top. We get a very good sense of how people in positions of influence and positions of power think, yeah? And we don't have as much, you know, what the view is like from the bottom or from the margins, right? How people see the world from those spaces. And I think that um, if we only think in terms, even if we only think in terms of knowledge production rather than uh, social justice, yeah, setting aside social justice just for a moment, even in terms of knowledge production, I think that we can understand much more about our society if we try to capture many views from many perspectives. Right? We have a better understanding of what, what our society is, past, present, and, 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 and then we can imagine different kinds of futures. Um, but then, of course, we must always bring in the social justice question, I think. Yeah? And I, I think for um, many journalists as well as academics, um, we do the work we do partly because there is a certain idealism about wanting to make the world a better place in some ways, right? No matter how sort of modestly we can do it and how as individuals, of course, we're just contributing to something larger. But, but I think that that motivation should be there. Um, and, and that if that's the case, then taking seriously voices from the margins is partly about sort of tipping the power imbalance that that exists. But do you sometimes feel like we are also kind of from the top? So like as a journalist, as an academic, writing about these things, about low-income families in rental housing, or about migrant workers in dorms, or um, you know, different marginalized communities, but I'm writing from this position of privilege, really. And sometimes that's helpful, sometimes it's not. So. So I always struggle between like at what point am I an ally and at what point am I taking up the space. So for example, there was this one case where um, I was asked to speak on a panel about trans rights, and like you know that it was kind of weird to me because I'm like I'm a straight cis woman on a panel about trans rights, but but I was asked because they had wanted to talk about um, the case of a Singaporean couple whose marriage was cancelled because one partner was transgender. And they were not comfortable with being in public. They were not comfortable with being identified. And so they basically told me, but at the same time, they wanted the story to still be out there. They don't want people to forget that this thing happened to them. So they told me that basically, you can go and speak. As the journalist who we gave the interview to, you can go and speak about what you've heard from us. So, so basically, I was able to access spaces that they couldn't or they weren't comfortable with accessing and I was able to be public in a way that they weren't and so in that case I'm like okay I'm just I'm, I'm sharing the message but at what other point um, am I just speaking for people so at the democracy classrooms on inequality because they were where they were at Straits Clan and at, um, uh, at another space in Little India they were not in spaces where you know like a single mother can just take leave and come and join. You know, we want, I, I wanted to hold a democracy classroom closer to where these families were, but I'm like, well, if we went on a void deck at a rental flat, we'd all just be arrested for public assembly. So, so we couldn't, but like, 
But so, so what that meant was, again, it was a lot of middle-class Singaporeans talking about inequality. And there was a lot of language like, oh, but these poor families, and they feel this, and they feel that. And like, on some level, it was slightly informed because they've read up, they've read articles. But on, on another level, it's a lot of projection as well, right? So like, they feel like this, they feel like that. And then none of us actually know if they really feel like that because they are not in the room. And so that's what I struggle with. How do we speak with and not speak for? And at a certain point in time, is it just too easy to like tip over onto the other side? Yeah, I mean, I, I think that this is a dilemma that probably um, it is hard to answer in a general, right, in, in general terms because it does depend or how, um, the answer to that question depends on how it plays out in any given instance, right, and how things are, are managed in any given instance. I think, um, and, I, and I wrote about this a little bit in, in the afterword, and, um, which, which I added to my, my book uh, late last year, um, where um, I, I, I think I, I try to think about my work not in terms of trying to represent people or trying to represent groups, because um, there's, I, I shouldn't in some ways be speaking on behalf of, right? I speak on the issue of inequality on behalf of myself in the sense that I think this this is not an ideal society for, for people like me to live in, right? And so in that way, I'm representing myself and, and perhaps my class, right? Yeah. Um, but, but, but it's of course a very different thing to then claim that I'm representing people who are low income, which, which I, I, I don't and I, I cannot say that I do, yeah? And um, I think one of the ways that I've been thinking about this lately is that part of my job or part of my duty is in some ways to expand the public sphere and is to expand the space in which people can speak. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and, and one of the ways to do that is to, in some ways, introduce, because I'm a sociologist, right, to introduce certain frames and certain vocabulary and certain language into the way people talk about things um, so that as other people come into this space, they can be read in ways that are not immediately sort of like um, stigmatizing, yeah, or, or they can be read in ways where people don't reject that and make judgment on, on them immediately. And I, I think that that kind of, um, I mean, that's, that's the hope, you know, that part of, part of what I can do in my work is to try to expand that, that, that space um, so that other people, and so that people can so that there is more space for people to speak for themselves in some way to represent themselves, yeah, yeah to, to some extent. And I, I've been thinking a lot about this question of legibility, right, and how um, a lot of the difficulty I have, I, I feel I have faced in, in the many years that I've been a sociologist is trying to be legible, right, trying to get people to, um, sort of recognize certain kinds of work or recognize certain kinds of existence as, as having a right to be. <laughs> yeah. and, and so I think legibility is very important and, and that also is how I see sort of part of the effort should be to create space for legibility for multiple life worlds. Mm -hmm. yeah. And, and that, that 
um, that is that is not really speaking on behalf of, but that's more like sort of seeing that you are part of something and building a space and trying to expand that space. Yeah, I think I wonder about this a lot because I see it um, in journalism and the almost kind of ritualistic way of the, a lot of us go up with our work, especially when the deadline is really tight, that, that this sort of making space for legibility, it falls to the wayside because a lot of journalists are, I don't have time for that. And then they don't really see it as their job. So they, so I, I know this because I, I found myself falling within this pattern as well of like, okay, this is a story on say, for example, inequality. So I will get the government statement. I will get like some facts and figures from data.gov.sg. Then I will like get the number of the, and then like, oh no, we need somebody who like talks about inequality, but like, I don't have time to go like knocking rental flats door to door to see who will go. So like, I'll just email you again and hopefully she can give me something. You know, that, that sort of mindset, and it happens for a lot of stories with a lot of journalists who just don't have time. That's why academics are quoted quite a lot because they reply to emails quite fast, some of them. And like, and it's, and sometimes, and NGOs as well, sometimes it's faster to be like, oh, okay, I don't have time, so I'll just get a quote from TWC2, rather than going to Little India, waiting for Sunday to go to Little India, and then ask migrant workers what they feel. So it, so in, in a way, like, even though we might have like the best of intentions to tell the stories, I think within journalism sometimes, particularly because of the speed, and the wanting to be first, and the wanting to churn content very fast, we, we end up not creating space for legibility because we, even though we might want to, we, we don't have time. And I think that's, that's one part of journalism that I started to feel very disillusioned with because I felt like I was filing stories without telling stories. And, and it just kind of, I didn't like doing that. So like, I didn't like being a breaking news, daily news journalist anyway. Um, I've always preferred writing features, but it's also harder to get features published because a lot of editors are like, well, we don't need that, or Singapore is not that interesting, particularly because I write for international media. Right? They're like, well, why do I need a 2,000-word story on Singapore when my European audience barely knows where it is on a map? Like, they don't care about your domestic worker problem. <laughs> you know, I literally had a friend who pitched a story about domestic workers to a UK newspaper saying that um, NGOs suspect that one in four domestic workers are locked in the house and not given a day off, and the editor's response was, come back when it's three and four, because then it will be a sensational enough story to catch attention. But if it's one in four in some faraway place called Singapore, why would a UK reader care about that? And so that is the very kind of cutthroat industry in which I find myself, in which these really horrible things are said, and I think editors have got to the point where they don't even hear themselves saying it anymore. They don't realize. Like, um, I, I once, towards the tail end of this job that I eventually quit, one of the final flags that I'm like, okay, I better quit this job, is I wrote this very short pickup um, from the mainstream media about a kid who was basically abused to death by his parents. And it was this really sad story. And the sentence had finally come in for his parents. And I wrote the pickup for the European um, news and the editor wrote back to congratulate me on what a good story that will get people's attention and like, I literally just wrote about a kid who was tortured to death and the response was congratulations on a good story and I was like well I can see why that is the response if day in day out your job is to just 
fix the copy, get it out, fix the copy, get it out. And then there are bombs going off in India and then there are terrorist attacks going off in the Middle East and your job at the desk is fix the copy and get it out. But after a while, I'm like, well, we've become so desensitized to what it is. I've heard photojournalists covering like accidents, going like, oh, the family doesn't look very sad, so the photos are not very good. And I know they don't mean it in this like really horrific way, but they're just trying to do their jobs. But you just kind of get caught up in this very desensitized thing. And so sometimes I wonder how that affects us when we write the stories as well. Do we lose the empathy? But then on the flip side, I get told that, oh, but then you cannot, you cannot be you know, so biased. You must be objective, so you must sit back. And, and so I struggle with that a lot, this idea of objectivity and of being neutral. And like, oh, if you show sympathy or empathy, you might be too biased. You're not seeing both sides. You know, you then that's why you become so critical of policies and of power and things like that. And so that's one of the things that I always struggle with. I don't know if academics have the same when you study things until they become studies, subjects of study rather than people. Oh yeah, I mean for sure. There's um, what what you describe. I mean, with, with the speed, of course, is very different. Yeah, and and academia, like I said earlier, is is of course operating at much slower speed than journalism is, but. Um, for most academics, the kind of orientation they have, um, particularly in, I, I guess the the last couple of the last couple of years in Singapore, where there's this very strong drive to to sort of aspire to, you know, global world class university, etc. Um, there are also certain kinds of orientations or certain kinds of um, incentives, shall we say, yeah, toward doing particular kinds of scholarship that isn't necessarily very interested in actually social issues at all in some ways, or urgent social problems, yeah? Um, because that's not necessarily what gets you published in these international journals. And there's a very similar kind of um, problem for Singapore scholars or scholars working on Singapore that, that you describe, where people, international um, Presses aren't necessarily interested in the Singapore case, right? So they always want to know if I'm not interested in the Singapore case, so what, <laughs> right? And so how will you abstract this to something theoretically more interesting? Yeah, and that's a real that that's very much the pressure you know people working on Singapore face, um, and I think that is also a big reason why, for junior scholars, actually working on Singapore is not a terribly good kind of. A career move in, in many ways, yeah, because of the difficulties of getting work on Singapore published in international journals, um, and 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 the 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 incentives within academia are not not necessarily towards the kind of work that you're talking about either. Yeah, but but then how then do you get like international journals to notice Singapore and and convince them that it needs to be published? Um, yeah. I think that um, you have to somehow figure out what those audiences want. Um, and so I think in, in some of my writings, and particularly when I was more junior and I was trying to get tenure, you know, those writings are in some ways more oriented to that audience you know, and the kinds of theoretical issues and the kinds of theoretical questions that that audience is interested in. Um, it's, it's very much a game. You have to look at these journals and you have to figure out what are these journals publishing and how do you publish more of it. So there's a way in which 
actually it's it's not necessarily always encouraging cutting edge or or or, or, um, or daring work right sometimes it's encouraging a lot of kind of how do we add one more beat to this you know long chain of beats and there's value in that as well you know there is value in that as well but but um, it can turn into its own kind of perverse game of <laughs> how do I how do I just kind of play that game, jump through that hoop, and yeah. create these things that don't necessarily speak to, to the kind of urgent issues that people in a society are, are, are concerned about, and in some ways also don't necessarily advance knowledge a lot. Mm. I, we we definitely see that in in journalism as well, particularly freelance. So like for example, one way to get an editor in the UK to look at your Singapore pitch is to start with, is Singapore going to be, is Brexit Britain going to be able to be like Singapore? And that's one way to get them to look at it, even, but then that requires you to first engage seriously with the idea that a Brexit Britain could be like Singapore, even though you think like that's just crackpot nonsense. But you still have to kind of like engage with it first and then like, you're like, yeah, some people have said this, and then like take it seriously, and then go, but, and then that's how you actually get the story through. But then, I don't know how many people actually read to the but parts. <laughs> like, I feel sometimes like when we are trying to pitch, um, we end up validating some things that we don't mean to validate. So for example, a lot of the Singapore stories that came out during the Trump-Kim summit as well, validates a lot of things, like, and then suddenly there's a lot of very like, racialized and exoticized things about, oh, you know, Sentosa got pirates last time, blah, blah, blah. And like, and you kind of have to play into that because that's what an editor wants. Or if even if you didn't write it in, an editor might write it into your copy for you. So I've had a few times where like, I never mentioned chewing gum in Singapore ever. But there have a couple of times where the story is published and the editor has written it in for me that Singapore bans chewing gum. And I'm like, it really doesn't matter. Like, I can't tell you how far down the totem pole of things that Singaporeans are anxious about is the chewing gum question. And, but, but an editor is like, no, I must put it in because it's the only frame of reference that my audience has to this. And so it's just really kind of frustrating, I think, to convince um, international editors and audiences that Singapore matters. And then, like, so for example, today I saw an article about how um, there are protests in Nigeria now because the government is trying to pass uh, almost word-for-word -word copy of POFMA. And I was like, Sila, Sila, I told you. I told you you were supposed to like pay attention to POFMA when it was in Singapore. And then you see now it's spreading. And, and I think it's really hard to, to get people to see that because so, so part of what I realized as I've been doing this longer and longer is that my role has also become more about kind of making Singapore legible to the rest of the world and to explain these things that happen and to show that there's actually like it's a local issue but it has resonance globally and you know these are things that we should all be concerned about because otherwise Singapore is seen as this um, like very successful financial hub and all their problems are solved and people don't really know very much about the things that happen here even people who are living very close to us so I remember explaining to um, one of our Indonesian editors at New Narrative that when you are interrogated by police in Singapore you do not have a lawyer and the interrogation is not necessarily recorded and the statement does not necessarily have to be verbatim and she was so shocked she was like but these are like 
third world problems that we all expected Singapore will work out. And she was like, you can have a lawyer in Indonesia. I was like, no, you can't have a lawyer in Singapore. And so people actually, it doesn't occur to them that these things are things that we struggle with in Singapore because they mistake the modernity and what they see in crazy rich Asians as a symbol of democracy and development. So they're like, if they can have a Marina Bay Sands, then things like you know, rights during interrogation, things like access to healthcare and LGBT rights must be sorted because they connect basically modernity with freedoms and liberal democracies. And, and that's not the case, and it's increasingly not the case, right? If you look at modernity and technology, China is so far ahead of so many people, and it hasn't come together with democracies. It's this very old idea that capitalism and democracy are the same thing. And so I think that's partly, as I've gone along, I found this to be more and more kind of my role as well, just to try to explain some of these things and why it's important. And so I think the, that leads also, we've talked about it a little bit already, but the challenges then of doing this sort of work and writing. What, what have you found in the process? Mm, I think two, two, main, two main things. One, one, I think, is something you've kind of touched on, and that is kind of these market pressures. Um, market's not quite the right word, but basically sort of where money is at for the work that we do and how that shapes the kinds of things people choose to do or not do, right? And, and money, has a, money has a huge effect on, on what gets told or what, what comes to be the stories that, the questions that people ask, not even the stories, yeah, the questions that people ask. Um, I think you, you mentioned, of course, the, the way it works in journalism and the pitches and the paying and all that. In academia, it works through grants who, who gives grants, how they decide what grants are given, uh, who decides what are the questions that need to be asked in a society. Um, and that is, a, that is a big way, a very important way to shape the kinds of research that, that gets done and a big way to shape the kinds of research that does not get done. Mm. Yeah. So I, I think that that is a, a huge issue um, where, where if, if there's insufficient kind of autonomy um, in terms of, of money and decisions and, and lack of autonomy on the part of, of academics to decide what they want to do, that, that's, a, that's a big thing. Um, the other thing I've been a little bit, well, not a little bit, I've been quite concerned about is, is I think there is a certain anti-intellectualism um, that, that I also see um, and I don't, I don't mean that in, in sort of like intellectual capital I way or anything, but there does seem to be um, a little bit of a, or, or how should I put it, I, a, a sense that empirical evidence and empirical data is, is not necessarily taken very seriously. Um, and a sense that this, this, um, this is coming from many different sort of directions, you know, where there's a skepticism or a, or a disdain yeah, for empirically driven work. Um, and I, that, of course, is a, is a huge problem for me. Yeah, I think my challenge, the, 
the thing about money is the same thing. And then like with new narrative, we, we see the same issue with grants in that um, also slightly different because with us, for example, there was this whole kind of political angle of the foreign grant, which to be honest, like I'm sure academics encounter all the time, right? Like I don't believe that every academic in Singapore is supported by Singaporean grants all the time. Everybody takes a foreign grant to do research and to do projects. For New Narrative, we did take a foreign grant to start up. So it was like the money to start up and that was then used to say that, you know, we are foreign interference and then the government might bring in this anti-foreign interference law in the, in the context of which New Narrative have been, has been named a few times already. So I don't know what's going to happen with that. I think that's going to be a big problem for us when the law comes out. The problem now is that we don't know what the law looks like. So I know that's going to be a problem. I just don't know the contours of this problem that's upcoming. Um, but, but it affects the same thing. Like it affects the sort of questions that people are willing to allow themselves to ask. So you know, like the sorts of things that they are willing to chase down, the sorts of stories they're willing to do, and um, how, how broad they want to put this vision. So you know, if, if you know, one thing that we could have done was, okay, if we don't want to take any foreign funding, then we must shrink and we will report only on Singapore and hopefully enough Singaporeans will support us to do that. But that's not really very sustainable because firstly, Singapore is, is a very small market to try to sustain quality journalism, which is a very expensive endeavor. Uh, and at the same time, we also kind of didn't want to do that. Right? We wanted to be regional because we felt that it was really important to make the point that our issues and our struggles do not stop at the water's edge. You know, it's not like something that happens in Johor is other people's problem and then only things that happen in this side of the causeway is a Singaporean problem because people move all the time and people have family and capital moves and everything moves. And so we wanted very strongly to make the point that regional stories are important. And so that expanded our scope and again made things a lot more expensive. Um, so we, had, we have to take these foreign grants because nobody in Singapore is going to give this money because of how the grants are given and who can give grants and who has the money to give out in Singapore. So there's all this kind of political questions that's, that's actually packaged as a very administrative thing. Because when they talk about grants and they talk about funding, it's talked about as an administrative thing. It's not political because it's just about running business and business models. But it, that, there are political angles to this. So one of the challenges that I often run into is how there is like a hidden political angle in, in a lot of things that otherwise seem administrative. So for example, my family, and I think some of you who've read the essay that I wrote that was published into a pamphlet will know, like my family, uh, my, my husband is not a Singaporean and we run into visa issues. And we never know why we run into visa issues. So because, again, there's no freedom of information, right? So, so I have no way of knowing um, what the reason for all these issues are. And then I ask and they're like, no, you know, we, we don't divulge this sort of information. Um, everything is done on a case-by-case -case basis in consultation with relevant government agencies. And I'm like, in that case, I want to know what the government agencies you consulted are. Like, you know, because I, you know, if, if you consulted like the Ministry of Health, that's one thing, but if you consulted ISD, I kind of feel like this is a bit of an important information for me, you know. 
and, but, but no, we don't get this sort of information. So I think, but then that also restricts the way that I can talk about it because I can't prove it. So when I talk to people, it sounds like a lot of people are like, oh, so it sounds like you've run into bureaucracy, huh? Oh, bureaucracy really sucks. And I was like, no, I think I've run into a political problem that is cloaked as a bureaucracy problem and really restricts the way that I can talk about my problem. And, and that is also this ongoing challenge because then I never know what exactly the problem I'm dealing with is. And I think that, that also scares a lot of people because the people who I speak to who are like worried about this and worried about that, can never fully articulate what the, what the worry is. So like, we have people who come up to us and say, um, I really like what New Narrative is doing, and I would really like to be a member, but I am a PR, so if I'm a member and they found out, do you think anything will happen? And it's kind of like, well, I don't know how to answer this question because what is this anything that will happen? I'm like, well, I don't think being a member of New Narrative in itself is enough, but at the same time, I can't guarantee because I'm like, well, I know a lot of people who have lost tenure, lost jobs, lost visas for I don't even know what reason, and they also don't know what reason. And so when somebody asks me for this sort of reassurance, I cannot give this reassurance because it comes down at the end of the day to there might be a risk. I don't know what this risk is. I don't know how big the risk is, but you kind of have to struggle within yourself about whether you're willing to take it. And it's very scary when you don't know how, like you can't even do a logical, rational analysis of how big or how small this risk is. You just have to do something. And, and I think that's really difficult. That makes it really difficult for anybody to do anything. I think that the, the fact that people ask such a question, right, mm. that people would wonder if they should even join this as a member, yeah. right, because they're a PR, that questions like this get asked, I mean, that is an effect of something, yeah. right? And I really like, uh, I reread your essay this morning. Uh, if you don't have a copy, you should go buy one. I don't know if Ethos is selling it. Um, it's called Silhouette, silu silhouette yeah. right, of oppression? Yes. Is that what it's called? Yeah. yeah. And I really like this imagery of a silhouette because, I mean, that's exactly, that, that's the point, right? Is this idea that it seems to be there, there seems to be something going on, but you can't really be sure. It's just a silhouette. And yet, that silhouette is enough. Yes. It's enough to shape the kinds of, of, of decisions people make, right? And some of these may seem fairly trivial, but I think a lot of these trivial things add up to something bigger that shapes our overall kind of public sphere, <coughs> yeah. right? And, and this is why people second, this, second guess themselves, or why they hold themselves back in asking certain questions and saying certain yeah. things or in, parti in participating in certain activities. I think people, people have often asked me if I self-censor, and I used to fairly confidently say, no, I don't self-censor. I'm lucky that I don't have to work in a mainstream media newsroom, so I don't have to self-censor. But then now the more I reflect on it and the more I kind of compare my writing to some other people's writing, I start to notice that I have certain ticks that I can only attribute to being a journalist in Singapore. So I think if people, if you go back and like read articles that I've written, I've only just recently as I started really picking up on this. I use, I use um, caveats a lot. I say things like appears to be, or is probably, or likely seems to be, and 
And I mean it is, like that's what I mean. <laughs> I mean it is, but I use appears to be, seems to be, it, because it's become over the years, a sort of butt covering conditioning where like, okay, because I'm already at some corner of my mind already, okay, so when we're in court, what is the lawyer going to say in my yeah, defense? Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, and I think that really affects that really affects the way that absolutely, we do things. Absolutely. Yeah, I think so. I mean, I think that in my writing too, there's there are places where I hedge, right? That's yeah. what it is. It's hedging <laughs> and creating padding, right? <laughs> if I say in this way, maybe this is a silhouette of a sentence or a silhouette <laughs> of a critique. Yeah. Um, I wanted to ask you as you were talking about about um, the situation of your husband mm. and, and the visa and all that, that when you decided to write that blog and then turn it into an essay. What was what was the impetus? Yeah. I think it was just this um, feeling that it should be out there, and I th and at that point in time, I was talking to a, a group of friends, um, among whom was uh, Tan Tan Hao, who published this blog post about academics that he's come across who have lost visas and tenure and positions in in Singaporean tertiary institutions. And I think even secondary institutions, maybe, in, in particular ways. So, so at that time, I kind of felt like, OK, my story is actually one of a series of stories. And, um, and I was getting very frustrated that precisely because there was no accountability and precisely because it was only silhouettes, um, none of us had said anything. And I felt like that was like multiple layers of oppression. So like first the penalty and then the extra penalty is you can't even talk about what's happened to you and I think at that time so I was thinking about these a lot of things and like um, I was also watching Jason Sue's Untracing the Conspiracy and there were all these um, Operation Spectrum detainees talking about what happened to them and I remember talking to I think it was Solang, Teo Solang about this and and she was kind of like yeah you know it's and she said one thing she said you know I'd rather be locked up than be bankrupted like Roy Nung uh, because at, okay, at the time we didn't know if Roy was going to be, we kind of assumed that he would be bankrupted. We just didn't realize he was going to just be in debt for like a really long time. But she was like, I'd rather be locked up than this sort of suing that takes months and is bankrupt. Because when you're locked up, it's very clear what's happened to you. <laughs> it's very clear that, you know, I am the victim of oppression. This is not fair. I shouldn't be here. I don't want to be here. It's against my will. Um, whereas this whole like being sued and then there's all this discussion of oh but maybe if you phrased it slightly differently maybe if, so there's a lot of this sort of victim blaming going on like maybe if you did this differently maybe if you did that differently or like with losing tenure again it's like oh you know maybe if you didn't do this maybe you didn't, maybe it's this maybe it's that and nobody can actually say no actually this is oppression and I think that was really bugging me the fact that I couldn't say what I felt that it was and it felt like there was a truth that was being denied. Um, and so we weren't even engaging. Like, So if I say it's oppression and the government wants to issue a press statement and say it's not and give the reasons, then at least that's something. Rather than this whole, like, we're just going to do this to you and then nobody says anything. So I decided that um, I would write something about it. I actually submitted it to an essay competition, um, and it didn't go anywhere. but. And then I sat on it for months and months before I published it because I was also asking my husband if he would be okay if we published it and all sorts of things. He, now he doesn't even have a visa anymore. So in that way, it actually makes it suddenly even simpler because it, it's gone from six monthly visas to no visa. And so we're just kind of like, oh, well, 
I guess that simplifies things because then you don't need to worry about whether the next visa renewal will be done or not because it just isn't. And so, so now it's just a question of, well, what do we do now? Um, does it mean that we do just have to leave? And like, because I'm so bloody minded, I'm like, how many other ways can I find to stay um, just out of sheer bloody mindedness of not leaving? Um, and, and yeah, that's, that's where we are at now. But it, it just felt to me like it was something that needed to be put out there. And I think um, some people have attempted to put out there like certain things. So you know, there'll be bits and pieces like the story of Lucy Davis, who was uh, associate professor at NTU and who was kicked out of Singapore. And you know, I felt that was just very unfair because she has been in Singapore for three decades, so much of her life. And it was just like, okay, bye. And it was just so unfair, like, just because we don't even really know why, but she's just gone. And it just made me really angry that, like, there could be so much power wielded over people's lives, and we are not even allowed to talk about it. And that just didn't seem fair. Okay, so I think we've run out of time. Thank you, everyone, for coming.